1: Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed mazmi from Princeton University.
0: And I'm your co-host, Fatma Tharik from NYU.
1: Today we are here to talk to Professor Becky Schultes about her out-of-the-press book, Channeling Moroccanness, Language, and the Media of Sociality, published by Fordham University Press just this year. Dr. Becky Schultes is an associate professor of anthropology at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. She is trained as a linguistic anthropologist with areas of interest including Arabic language ideologies, graphic sensibilities, social media discourse, and more recently, human-planned semiotic ideologies. She has previously co-edited with Donnelly Bowen and Evelyn Early, the third edition of Everyday Life in the Muslim Middle East, published by Indiana University Press in 2014. Today's book, Channeling Moroccanness, by discussing it, we will explore the question of the book, which is, what does it mean to connect as a people through mass media? This book approaches that question by exploring how Moroccans Engage communicative failure as they seek to shape social and political relations in urban Fez. Over the last decade, laments of language and media failure in Fez have focused not just on social relations that used to be and have been lost, but also on what ought to be and had yet to be realized. Such laments have transpired inspired in a range of communication channels from objects such as devotional prayer beads and remote controls to interactional forms uh, such as storytelling, dress styles, and orthography to media platforms like television news, religious stations, or WhatsApp group chats. Channeling Moroccanness examines these laments as ways of speaking that created Moroccanness the feeling of participating in the ongoing formations of Moroccan relationality. Rather than featuring the discourse about Morocco's conflict between liberal, secularist, and religious conservatives, this ethnography shows the subtle range of ideologies and practices evoked in Fassi homes to calibrate Moroccan sociality and political consciousness. Welcome Vicky to New Books in Anthropology and thank you so much for joining the podcast.
2: Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book. It's always a pleasure.
1: We would like to start, uh, the pleasure is ours. Um, We usually start the podcast by learning more about the author before we learn about the book. If you can say a few words about yourself, that is where you grew up. Uh, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any scholars or books that shaped your thinking.
2: Sure. Um. So I am. I'm kind of an outlier in my family. I grew up on a dairy farm in the western United States. Uh, and milked a lot of cows and did a lot of farm life. Um. But I was an avid reader as a child. Um had a passion for and a fascination with the peoples of the Middle East, even from a very young age. I don't know why. I, I guess I can thank my small high school library and um, later study abroad programs for really fostering that. Um, but I I, learned, I knew very early on that I wanted to spend time in the um, Middle East. And uh, so I did study abroad in Jerusalem as an undergrad. I did an archeological field school in Syria worked for a Palestinian NGO in Nazareth, um, and then later worked for the American Institute for Maghreb Studies um, in my the early part of my PhD uh, that allowed me to go to Oran, uh, Oran, Jazeera, Algeria, and Tangier, Morocco, um, as a part of my work. So I was able to experience a lot of different contexts and and ended up doing, of course, my my ethnographic fieldwork in Morocco. Um, And part of my trajectory was very much influenced by Arabic sociolinguists um, that I learned Arabic under. Uh, Both of the people I started to learn, I studied Arabic with were sociolinguists. And that really shaped my understanding, and I really didn't know much about anthropology um, until as an MA student, I had done a historical MA, um, um, and I was asked while doing that MA to teach the Middle East section of an intercultural anthropology course, and that's what led me to linguistic anthropology. I realized very early on, uh, at least while I was teaching that class, that linguistic anthropology was really where I wanted to direct myself. I loved anthropology. I loved the um, opportunity to get into everyday experience uh, and to really understand the world through everyday experience. And and I loved the way that um, the focus on language um, and semiotics more broadly, sign systems, really helped me to get at that. Um, I really can't name names because if I do, I'm going to leave someone out. Um, I've been really influenced by so many people. Um, I did my um, doctorate at the University of Arizona uh, under Norma Mendoza-Denton and Jane Hill and Tad Parks. Uh, and it was just a really great opportunity to um, learn from some pretty fantastic scholars. Um, and they introduced me to other scholars who have really shaped my thinking. The book is really uh, really influenced by the work of Paul Cockleman, um, Laura Ahern, Michael Silverstein, Bambi Sheflin, Steve Caton. Um, I could go on and on and on. I mean, I, I don't even know how many scholars I could, I mean, there's lots cited, but um, like I said, if I name names, I'm going to leave people out. So um, I really have been heavily influenced by so many people. That's the beauty of linguistic anthropology as a discipline is that it's, um, people are very generous with their ideas and with feedback and um, I've really been able to learn so much from so many great scholars.
1: That's that's beautiful. And, and I remember you, uh, just a disclaimer, Becky Ashley is my former uh, advisor during my master's studies at Rutgers. And I remember us going uh, to the linguistic anthropology conference at UPenn and I've witnessed the collegiality that you're talking about. That's wonderful. Um, so let's, now turn to the book and its chapters. Uh, a little bit about the architecture of the book. The book, uh, as an ethnography, is quite engaging. Uh, you have these beautiful, what you call episodes, which are quite fitting for you know the media you're talking about, uh, that runs through the book. Uh, and after that, we have uh, this scholarly part in which we analyze and dig deep into these uh, ethnographic encounters and vignettes. Uh, the book is also richly illustrated. We have these beautiful images of gra- uh, graffitis, of, of signs, of uh, this, the richness of the scape, as you call it, of of Fez. And then at the end of the book, we also have um, the transcripts. And I appreciate that for someone who is interested in language, that's going to be very useful to read uh, the transcripts at the end of the book to get a gist of uh, the sort of, groundwork you've done for writing this book um, so in the book you also share your positionality your subjectivity is quite present as as uh, an ethnog- ethnographer and I honestly felt that um, I'm, I'm sitting in that living room while you are observing the family uh, that you are um, observing and, and and taking your field notes and talking about spreading the lovash uh, curry cheese and uh, olive oil and all of that, it got me also hungry. <laughs> so thank you for all of that. Um, I know that for your graduate training, you've also worked on Lebanon in addition to Morocco and you've been working on, on Morocco for the last decade or so um, and, and the book is really Accumulation. And it shows actually in the book uh, of of that long process of engagement with Morocco and Moroccanness. If you can tell us a bit more about uh, the research process, what it's like uh, for you to conduct um, an ethnography that engages what people consume in terms of media, uh, but also uh, their, their lived linguistic practices.
2: Sure. So I would. I learned. I, again, I'm continuing to learn even at this stage of my career. Um, I. It did take me a long time to, to publish the book. Partly because, it took me a long time to really process what I learned when I did my doctoral fieldwork, um, and a lot of the chapters that end up in the book are actually from subsequent fieldwork um, that expanded on things I had learned during the year that I spent in Morocco and the year I spent in Lebanon. So I would say when it comes to ethnography, um, it takes time, it's just a process of time. Uh, and it takes a time both to write observations, but also takes time to situate them, to to analyze them, to understand them better. Uh, I go back and look at field notes and I understand them in a very different light even now uh, because of my continued engagement with the populations that I've been working with. So to me, ethnography is always process. And it, even though the book is published, that work is ongoing, as probably Fatima can attest, <laughs> given her own t- interests. Um, ethnography is just a process. Uh, it, we do have to publish, but those books are unfinished. Um, and they lead to other things. Uh, so to me, um, the fieldwork is always ongoing. And that is, that is the best part of academic life for me, is the opportunity to learn from people, uh, to learn from the people that I interact with. Um, so as you can tell, I started out the project as a dissertation project. Um, and it evolved and emerged out of just spending time with people. I went over to to improve my Arabic to Morocco um, in 2000 and uh, in the summer of 2000 um, and then ended up going back and back and back and was just fascinated with the ways that people engaged media um, and the ways that language was such an integral part of that. Uh, And ethnography just allowed me the opportunity to spend time and I recorded interactions, but I also, um, audio and video recorded, but I also just wrote notes, lots and lots of notes uh, that helped me situate things that were happening all around me. And my notes are from all kinds of places, taxi cab rides, uh, from, from fancy meals, like wedding meals, to everyday lunches or dinners or even cascarote, right, the uh, tea time that is so uh, important in Morocco, um, in Moroccan homes, I should say. So ethnography is just a process and the th- things I observe come out of that process.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate the the, the mundaneness of, of your observations. It's really captures the, the, I don't wanna say the cliche, but really the everyday life of those people and, and, and really give us sort of a, a rare view into their worlds. Um, A little bit more about the ethnography and and more specifically the the subdiscipline that you engage in the book. You've stated in the book uh, on page six, my training is in linguistic anthropology, which assumes that communication is always about something other than referring to things as they are in the world. Um, So for our listeners uh, who are unfamiliar with this uh, subdiscipline, can you introduce the listeners briefly to it? And how does your book engages and contribute to it?
2: Sure. So I am, as you noted, trained as a linguistic anthropologist, which means that I am interested in the connections between language and social life. Um, And to me, language, um, despite the kind of key Euro-American ideology that language is about communicating denotationally, which means to give labels to things as they are, right? To just communicate things as they are. Um, In linguistic anthropology, we assume that there are other functions of language. The language is about doing social work. And that social work is what I try to explore in the book. Um, We have a technical term for the, the kinds of social work that happens we call that uh, well one of the key terms that we use is uh, indexicality or iconicity. Um, we talk about kind of different, um, different functions, right? Different modes through which social work gets done that isn't just about spoken signs, but also about gestures and um, objects and graphic. Forms, as I mentioned. Um, And so all of those things are what I explore in the book. I'm not just interested, to me, language is much broader than just spoken or written forms. Language, because it always co occurs with other signs, involves bodily comportment, it involves clothing, it involves, um, as you will read in the book, um, the um, prayer motions, right? It involves all kinds of things that um, co occur with spoken and written forms um it involves fonts and colors and um it involves all kinds of signs Um, and all of those are pointing to social practice and to social ideologies and to uh, social connections or disconnections as the case may be
1: indeed Uh, that was very useful introduction a crash course in the field um so let's talk about the organization of the book. The book consists of five chapters, and within them, as I've mentioned, there are numerous episodes that share fascinating ethnographic encounters. In each chapter, you introduce, uh, as you wrote, laments about communicative channel failures that precipitated moroccan projects by the state and several uh, FASI collaborations of those moroccan efforts. Um, in your question, in your in your uh, introduction, you anticipate the question of why have you focused on relationality that is Moroccanness, this specific national uh, relationality, um, and why uh, investigating uh, what I think is is really a cool way of thinking about it, uh, productive failures to to think about this relationality. Um, so I guess my question is how have longing, and lost expressions acted as uh, collaborations of Moroccanness, uh, media ideologies, and communicative ideologies? Sure.
2: So I came up with the term Moroccanness because I didn't like the, idea, the term Moroccan identity. Um, identity, uh, as it has been discussed um, within psychology and even within anthropology, has really been about individualness. And I wanted to get at relatedness not at um, kind of individual psychology, but about the connections between things uh, and between peoples. And so that's why I came up with the term Moroccanness, which is, as you nicely put um, and described, my notion for relationality, for how people connect, what are the forms of their connections. And um, to me, I found it fascinating over the decade that I've worked in Morocco how much people lament changes, um, But they do so not just to be um, to be uh, despairing. Instead, they lament it because it's an active work of trying to change the way that Moroccans connect, the way that they relate. And the connections through media are so pervasive. And so, um, at least in the uh, imaginary of the people that I was working with um, in, the, in their lives, they saw media as being such a profound uh, influencer of their connectedness, of their Moroccanness. Um, oftentimes lamenting that it was such a failure, right? That public media... Transnational media um, that media, media mediating forms were correcting forms of Moroccanness and social and sociality that um, had been in the past, or that they wanted to be in the future um, that they, that they desired or aspired to for Moroccans. Uh, and so that really shapes the whole form of the book, is this this longing, this lament, that serves as work, right? It is very productive. Um, People on all sides of political spectrum are lamenting the failures of connection in Morocco. And they're doing so in order to shape and to uh, influence the directionality of the future connectedness. Um, And that was really what drove um, my analysis in the book.
0: Thank you, Becky, for that uh, personal introduction and a little bit about the uh, introduction of the book. Um, Going into the first chapter, multilingualism was something that I felt was very connected to this idea of Moroccanness, Moroccanness. And in the first chapter, you discuss the Fassi linguiscape. Um, can you introduce maybe uh, Fez to the listeners and what are the kind of sociolinguistic contours of Fez and its linguistic communities? I'd love if you could talk a little more about the way FASIs are very aware of the linguistic markers of different registers. You mentioned Jebli, Old FASI, Fessie, and Fassi Koine. Um, I was wondering in the case of the Fassi family where all three registers were spoken, I wondered uh, do speaking practices at some point? do you think become a personal choice as distinct social markers? Or are they more so a result of different socialization processes? Thank you. Um, all very good questions.
2: Um, so I would say, first of all, that um, the attention to linguistic difference, right, and the social work that that does is not just something that happens for Fasis, right? I happen to do my field work in Fez, but Moroccans all across the country are constantly attending to the linguistic markers of difference. Um, and those differences as, you know, I marked them as, um, kind of geographic, but they're also social, um, right. The difference between old Fassi and, um, and the kind of more Fassi Koine or the generalized, um, way of speaking in Fez, um, they're, they're about um, aspirational differences and about class differences, although fussies don't really talk about class that much. Moroccans in general don't. Um, but they are about uh, social difference, um, however that gets marked, and uh, as I describe in the book. Um, and those come out in encounters, right? They emerge in encounters, which means that um, they're, the repertoires of, the Fasis that I interacted with were quite broad. They could, they could evoke all kinds of Arabics, all kinds of um, different ways of speaking French, and and even um, forms of English as you are um, as you are studying currently, Fatima. Um, but also um, s- different kinds of Spanish, and because Fez is um, such a attracting place for tourism, um, depending on people's backgrounds, they could. They could, en- they could engage all different ways of speaking in terms of languages, in terms of registers, but also in terms of um, different forms of Arabic and different forms of French, as I mentioned. So um, there's just a lot of linguistic diversity going on in Fez. Um, and people are attuned to that and they mark how those distinctions position each other. Um, and But they're very context specific. So as I mentioned um, there's an encounter I observed in one family where one the mother was from Jabala, which is up in the north, and the, um, the husband was, the father was from um, the old city of Fez, but he didn't speak using that old city, which are very kind of iconic markers of being from very old Fessy families um, that grew up in the Medina in the old city. Um, he didn't use those. He used more of the kind of urban register that is across all of Morocco, but with very specific, um, forms that are again, a marker of urban fez, but not the Medina, but he could use those Medina markers. And he did quite regularly, um, depending on who he was talking to. Uh, so he would joke about it with his wife on occasion, or he would, when speaking with his brother, um, he would use it quite often because his brother, who also grew up in the same household, chose to use those as his marker of identity. So sometimes they are very consistently a marker of identity, but oftentimes those differences, right, are about situations and interactions and people can invoke them in order to make a connection. So even though the children of this family I speak about in that chapter um, grew up in Fez and all speak the urban koine the Um when they encountered somebody who was Jibala, because they had heard their mother speak and they'd spent time in that area um, with their extended family, uh, they could switch to Jibli and in order to make that connection or to in order to um, create a, a bond, a fatic bond with someone um, in those instances. So, and at the same time, when they met somebody who was from the old Medina, they could switch into the old Fassi and connect through those terms. And it wasn't a sustained register, but it was enough to create that sense of connectedness. Uh, and so it, that was a very common thing for people to be able to do is to switch even little bits and pieces of their way of speaking to make a connection.
1: Mm-hmm. And I remember that what they call um, the participant framework I guess uh, that's really fascinating that um, you can capture all of this richness by just observing the way people uh, present themselves linguistically. Um, Moving to chapter two, uh, literate listening, broadcasting news and ideologies of reasoning, which is a fascinating chapter I really recommend and I really enjoyed. it. Um, What are the news uh, talk registers in Fez that you examine in this chapter? Uh, and what are the Moroccans' uh, framing of literacy, illiteracy, uh, comprehension, and, and, of course, Moroccanness uh, by, by observing um, the, the news uh, talk and other uh, discourses of literacy?
2: So I started the chapter with a quote that is, and it comes from um, Open Society report that said that most Moroccans could not engage the news because they were not literate enough uh, to understand it. Um, And as you mentioned, um, the news in Morocco is presented in uh, FUSHA, which is the standard that is used across the Arabic-speaking world. Um, It's a very formal register that almost everyone learns in school. Uh, it's, it's, It's not something that people speak on a daily basis for the most part. Um, it's certainly not a conversational register. It's very much tied to formal institutions and settings. Um, it is the standard Arabic that is used across the uh, region. The news is primarily in that, or it's in standard French, um, or it's in uh, um, Amazer, one of the Amazek uh, varieties, Tamazight, Tarafit, or Tashelhit, depending on the time of the day. Um, News is, but in all of these instances, um, it's a very formal register. And because one doesn't actually um, acquire these, with the exception of the uh, Amazaki languages, um, through everyday interactions, uh, the assumption is that you have to have gone to school in order to understand the news. And the assumption is that most people don't, that the literacy is, that schooling is so poor in Morocco right now people just aren't learning the languages well enough to understand the news. Um, And I, my experience with watching people watch the news was not that at all. Um, And my, what I saw emerging was a counter narrative about literacy, Um, that literacy isn't an individual skill, right? A set of skills that are acquired by an individual, but rather the pooling of shared resources, right? Um, In interactional settings. So families would, and this occurred in cafes too, but I didn't spend much time in cafes. I spent most of my time in homes. Uh, People would just sit around together and they would share their linguistic resources to comment on and, uh, and to evaluate and to assess what was being talked about in the news. Uh, they would sometimes summarize it, but oftentimes um, they would just share their resources, what they had with each other, um, uh, just commenting about it. And in the process of evaluating what was being talked about, they would actually transfer what was being talked about. Uh, So I came up with this concept of um, distributed literacy, right? This notion that literacy is not just an individual skill, but something that can be shared based on different notions of literacy which are not tied to formal schooling but can be tied to things like religious um training uh in Quranic uh recitation or tied to interactions is one of the concepts of the fessies some of the fessies that i worked with talked about this way of learning moral reasoning through through interaction with people through Literally, the rubbing together of uh, of people, right, of of their um, through interaction, this generative friction that can actually occur when you interact with people um, of all different backgrounds, and so these concepts, and um, and distributed literacy, were what was actually happening in interpretive moments and in with, with regard to the news so that people who had zero formal education were some of the most avid news watchers I knew um, and f- were able to follow what was going on in the world, um, followed world events much more closely than I did um, because of their interactions and not because of their formal schooling or their linguistic skills in standard Arabic or standard French.
0: Yeah, I found really interesting that notion of ihtikak uh, and why in the second chapter and this idea that someone could be khari wa masri educated but unaware. And I love that you presented this uh, the idea of distributed literacy as a challenge to this idea of literacy as just simply from education, you know, the statistics that's constantly presented as uh, so many Moroccans are illiterate when Fasis constantly practice communal meaning making through, cross-con- through cross-conversations when consuming media with family members and um, critique as this powerful democratic tool that many of them used across literacy levels. Yeah, everybody was engaging
2: in critique. They were all critiquing each other. Um, And it wasn't always a a, a liberal notion of critique, right? It wasn't necessarily um, critique that was kind of progressive or open in any sense. It was critique that was democratic, but it wasn't liberal. And I think sometimes we um, confuse those two notions. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for for engaging in critique that is um, perhaps non-liberal, but still democratic.
1: Indeed. Um, and we learn more about, actually how critically Moroccans have consumed the state media in Chapter 3, uh, registering media and remediating a register. Moroccan Morality Tales, which is a very cool chapter, I think, because it resonates with me growing up in the UAE and consuming sort of folkloric, uh, so-called traditional um, retelling uh, and, and embedding them with messages uh, that are not consumed passively by the audience. Um, so How did the Moroccan uh, state media try to create, uh, as you say, a shared Moroccanness around uh, gender equity messaging through a revitalized speech style or or socially significant register known as uh, Hadral Mizan, which is rhyme prose associated with storytelling uh, of generations past. Um, If you can elaborate uh, on this genre and how it has been employed as 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 a sort of social engineering tool, you may say, in Morocco.
2: Sure. So i I found this particular genre of programming fascinating. Um, it predated my time, my field, my initial fieldwork time. Uh, there's been a long tradition of what we call heritage TV um, or torah television, right? Which is uh, taking of um mythical tales or historical tales um specific to Morocco or to the Arabic speaking world um and taking them and, and retooling them for civic work right for civic um values that the state wants to be transmitted to the population and i found them fascinating right so the first encounter i had with these was a program called alif lam which was a literacy program that uh, was trying to reach out through television to um, older illiterates and younger kids who d- seemed not attracted by the schooling system uh, to try to teach them standard Arabic, but it did so through these um, through these Moroccan tales, these morality tales, and it did so using this rhymed prose that was in derija, right? It was in the um, the Moroccan local um, way of speaking um oftentimes actually the derija that was spoken in these was oftentimes marakshi because the main actress was (laughs) well i mean it was a mix of kaza of of, from marrakesh and and kaza because some of the actors and actresses who were involved in the creating of this were from that region from those cities but uh but it still allowed for after they would tell this morality tale then they would retell it using specific fusha um, forms, certain standard forms. And I found that fascinating that um, that one could use this dirija-rhymed prose to try and teach um, standard literacy, but through a moral lens um, and specifically always highlighting the role of these clever women. qid um, Nisa was an example of that, the the tricks of women, right? Right. Um, and it wasn't just Alif Lam, this literacy program. There were lots of films being produced by uh, Moroccan producers um, that would be about the cleverness of women or about um, showing that, uh, that equality um, could be found even in these historical tales. Uh, and so I found this a fascinating process, right, um, of linking gender equity, which is very much a state project, um, a state civic project, um, linking gender equity to morality tales, but through a specific register, which is this rhymed prose, right? This very rhythmed way of introducing almost, we might call it storytelling speak, um, that allowed for um, a link to this older way of, you know, older people's moral storytelling, um, but linking it to a very modernist project of gender equity. Um, and as you noted um, in the book, I find that that wasn't always the message that people took away. People were so happy that the nostalgia, you know, they had this nostalgic association with this rhymed prose and with these moral tales. But what? the producers were trying to convey in terms of gender equity was not always what the messaging that was picked up by the people watching it. They oftentimes were just happy to hear the rhymed prose and they were more fascinated by the, the what we call the indexical feel of right. The the social connectedness to that moral past than they were into their, you know, the, the forms of speaking that were clever and tied to their grandparents than they were to anything else. Um, they weren't as fascinated by the tales about gender equity or about um, promoting disability, right? Um, recognition of uh, of the quality of disabled persons. So it was it was um, it was a fascinating process to watch the way that that the state was trying to mobilize this way of speaking, this register, um, but the ways that it failed to connect, at least among the FASI families that I was working with.
0: Right. That nostalgia that was picked up by uh, uh, one of your uh, interlocutors who didn't even uh, watch the show, but um, expressed the same nostalgia uh, for that kind of speaking with rhyme and rhythm um, that, older generations were able to do and the deep morality that was kind of denoted by that type of speech um, was fascinating and it and it, was, it resonated with the overall theme of like this lament and the communicative failure, failures um, which was seen in the last chapter um, through the failure of, of like TV due, um, due to, con- to connect people due to lack of access and it's something, it, it reminded me of like how intentionality versus like what the state intended, mm-hmm. right, with the with it with the show and then uh the uptake is what really is important for us as linguistic anthropologists um people understand to understand and relate to the message yeah that oftentimes the message is not the, the uptake is just very
2: different from what the um, producers intended uh and that is the beauty of of ethnography is that you get a sense of the of the disconnect or or i would say the (laughs) the difference of connection because they were still they were still connecting they were just connecting on a level that the state necessarily wasn't necessarily as interested in
1: Mm -hmm. Um, moving to uh, the soundscape uh, in phase in chapter four uh, scripting sounds and sounding scripts which is lovely title uh, senses channels and their discontents um So if somebody listens to you now, he would think, how did Moroccan Arabic uh, come to be politically charged uh, to to this extent? Um, And and what were, as you say, the overlapping partial and fractional language ideologies that uh, permeated representational diversity in publicly circulated forms of Moroccan language usage? Um, If you can shed light on the linguistic representations of, of Moroccan Arabics and and what does that tell us about um, channeling Moroccanness?
2: Sure So one of the again the key one of the key formations of Moroccan nationalism has been Arabic as a unifier right but in this case, the state as all Arabic speaking states, chose, um, standard Arabic fusha, as the, as the kind of, um, key unit unifying medium of nationalism, at least on paper constitutionally. Uh, but in practice speak, people were connecting and unifying around dirija, which is why we call it right. Moroccan Arabic in English. Um, Arabic is tied to nationalism in specific ways, but it's usually not the standard. Um, and so there's a tension between this formalizing, centralizing role of standardness and the heterog- heter- heterogeneity of dialect, right? Of, dirija, of um of the ways that people actually use language. And I was fascinated by the ways in which this isn't just an issue of orthographic, right, of, of writing styles. It's not just an issue of f- specific spoken forms. These are very interconnected, but we oftentimes write as if they're different. So in the literatures, the linguiscape is almost always about graphic forms or spoken forms, but rarely about the ways in which spoken forms are um, kind of evoking the the. the, the the tangibility or materiality of writtenness um of graphicness and i wanted to th- th- think about that more because that's the way that the fussies that i worked with viewed things um it was very strange for them to see derija s- written and to try and then reanimate that spokenly in a spoken form uh and so i found that very fascinating and um i began to realize that um that the connection between um, the embodiment of speaking and the embodiment of writing uh, really needed to be explored better, especially in terms of modalities. So it was okay for um, for déjà to be used in in um, radio advertising, right? Because that was considered conversational and normal. But it was a very different, and and, and it was even okay to do that to write déjà in texting because that was again attached to a modality that was. Uh, mobile phones, right? Which were, again, more of a spoken entity. But when it became attached to newspaper writing, all of a sudden, it was a very, very different political loading and social loading. Um, and so I began to realize that that modalities mattered for that embodiment of speaking and graphic forms. Uh, and so that's what I wanted to explore in this chapter, is the is the political loading of embodied ways of speaking, um, the multisensory aspect that is a part of being Moroccan. And it became very clear that um, that published newspapers were were problematic for writing Derija. It was seen as um, a challenge to state uh, unification and state notions of Moroccanness, right of connection. Uh, and those entities, um were oftentimes the, so the newspapers or the uh, that used derija as a medium of expression written derija as a medium of expression um used it to challenge the state um politically uh, on several issues and so there was an indexical linking between um resisting state authority um and the writing in derija um, in newspapers. But that wasn't the case, for example, um, has become less so in advertisements or in um, chats or other, other modalities, other platforms. Um, so that was part of what I was trying to explore is the ways in which media platforms or mediums um, were politically and socially charged uh, in terms of the graphic sonic forms that people encountered in them or used them for.
0: Right I was particularly interested in the heterogeneity and even the orthographic um forms of like of the of writing. sometimes I noticed the um the letter that's in the Egyptian like a game sound was kind of like sometimes it was like a calf with a line over it. sometimes it had like the three dots, but it's just like um because people um. Spoke the language, they would know. I would think they it would be still easy to read because they know the word and then context. But it's interesting that, um, it Derija was still hard to read, even though it's such a um, you would think it would be easier um, because it's spoken.
2: Yeah, and written Derija is um, it, it it's pointing to all different kinds of social embeddedness. Uh, so even in Morocco. Um, there's differences in the way that people pronounce the forms and they tried to find a graphic way to, to represent that. Uh, and so part of that was the heterogeneity that we saw in the writing of Derija of writing of Moroccan Arabic. Uh, it, there wasn't a policing of it. There's no standardness because it's not the standard. Um, it's not the form people are supposed to write in. And so they can write it in, in any form they want. Uh, and that allowed them quite a range of, um, Identity work, right? A, a range of, but also a range of connectedness. Uh, this notion of heterogeneity um, allowed for you could write and represent the, your ways of speaking in a lot of different ways because because it wasn't the standard and it didn't
1: need to be. Mm-hmm. And in relation to this, um, I'm, I'm reminded of your uh, journal article. I believe, uh, do you speak Arabic? It's called, mm-hmm. if you can remind me of the title. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a great read. It's about uh, Arab Got Talent. Uh, was it that show?
2: Um, Arab Idol and uh, I think Idol, with, yeah. yeah, I think with Arab Idol. Well, there's a several. Of yeah. Them.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was one of those uh, talent shows. And it was about the linguistic confusions and orthographies. And it's, it's just a fascinating read, I think, for a classroom. And I think the, the reader will benefit also from reading that article. And connection to chapter four, um, I'm really intrigued by by the last chapter, chapter five, and, and I'm really thankful that you've included this chapter in the book because I I feel it wouldn't be a complete sort of understanding of channeling Moroccanness without really including uh, Islam uh, and, and religiosity uh, within that uh, uh, that production of Moroccanness. Uh, so chapter five, mediating Moroccan Muslims. Um, What can the so-called Moroccan model of Islam uh, that the strait projects tell us about uh, the production and channeling of Moroccanness? Uh, Specifically, how do the people of Fez express their concerns about the channels by which Muslims uh, learned and shared Islam? Um, And and what can that tell us about uh, recognizability, right? The, The social recognizability of Moroccanness through the medium of Islam.
2: So I became, I started my fieldwork in Morocco right at the point where they had their um, wake-up call about uh, forms of Islam that the state did not approve of. Um, there was a bombing uh, in Casablanca that killed a number of people that were all Muslims, right? They were Moroccan Muslims, um, and this was, uh, and it was targeted against. You know, it was. Uh, by what the state calls extremists, um, um, but not everybody believes they're extremists, right? Uh, There's a whole range of perspectives perspectives about what it means to be Muslim in Morocco. And the state was very concerned that they had lost the narrative on what it means to be an appropriate Muslim um, in Morocco uh, after this event. Uh, and it's, of course, only blossomed since then, given the rise of um, Daesh and the, uh, the Islamic State and um, and other, right, Al-Qaeda, Al-Maghrib. There's a whole range of groups that uh, are challenging the state's narrative of, about um, its authenticity in relationship to Islam. And so the state started to very much invest in, the semiotics or the sign mechanisms of what it means to be a Moroccan Muslim, to connect as Moroccan Muslims, to relate as Moroccan Muslims, uh, and part of that, of course, involved a foregrounding of of very specific Moroccan signs of Islam. Right, the form of the minaret, uh, the the uh, the orthography of Quran, of Qurans. Um, there's a, a maghrebi hat. There's a call- calligraphy that is very specific to um, Morocco that uh, they print their Qurans in. And there's also um, what they call they, and, and this whole semiotic bundle, um, very for specific f- uh, mechanisms for prayer um, that were seen as kind of an, a marker of Moroccan um, of the Maliki school which is one of the um, schools of Islamic thought uh, and that is connected to Morocco um, that is, of course, promoted by the Moroccan government. And all of this became bundled into what they called the Namoud al-Maghribi al-Islami, this Moroccan model of Islam um, or practice, we might say, of Islam uh, that allowed them to, to foreground the tolerance of Moroccanness, uh, in relationship to Islam. Uh, and the chapter explores that, um, and the tensions that exist among Fasis who don't necessarily agree with um, some of the ways the state is promoting um, Moroccan forms of Islam, or not forms, Moroccan signs of Islam, right? The, the, the model of being a Muslim that connects to other Muslims within Morocco. Uh, and there was a lot of tension over that. And it came out when people were watching this or listening to the um, religious channels that were being promoted by the state. And that's what I explore in the chapter is those tensions. Um, and I and the chapter ends by looking at how that plays out even in, in one family, right? It's not even that families are socialized into particular ways. Even within a family, there are differences in how they perceive Muslim practice and its Um, and what, how that connects to other Muslims or how it should connect. And there's a lament that of course, Moroccans aren't, um, as Muslim as they ought to be. Uh, and this again has precipitated this challenge of connectedness that I explore in that chapter.
0: Right. Taking a look at that example of that family at the end of the chapter, uh, We once again see uh, distributed literacy in the way these they're kind of coming together to understand um, or take take messages, I guess, from the from the the religious program. And it's just it's really comical, actually, like the way that the um, the the older brother makes it about uh, gender relations and tries to kind of preach to the sister. Who and 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 the main message uh, is is like about predestination and so once again we see like that um the the friction of, of contact is um, you
2: never know where it's gonna go because it's it is generating friction right um right. and so even though the message from the state is about predestination the the way that the family took it up was in a very different manner about gender roles or even just you know I just wanna watch and enjoy it. I don't wanna have to worry about gender roles. I don't wanna have to worry about predestination. Let's just enjoy being together in the family. Um, And you get that feel as they keep riffing and teasing each other all the way through that interaction.
0: Yeah, it was very enjoyable to read. Um, All right, so in conclusion, Uh, who would you like to read the book and what would you like its impact to be? And if you think, uh, if you can think of Moroccans, anthropologists, anyone interested in the scholarship, you engage as well as North Africa.
2: So I tried to make the book accessible to somebody who didn't know anything about North Africa or who didn't know anything about linguistic anthropology, but just had an interest in learning about how people connect through media. Um, I'm and the role that language has in that process. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm hoping that it will be of interest to non-specialists. Um, I tried to make it as accessible as possible. Uh, I hope that people outside of anthropology will read it to, to better understand um, how, how politics are super mundane right? They play out in very, very mundane ways. They're not always about the big events. Uh, and how, what seems to be very, um, very despairing, right? Laments, when we talk about laments, we think about them as being about sadness or about loss. Um, but this book is actually very hopeful. This book is about how s- the feeling of loss can be super generative and um, productive uh, in promoting social relations that are based on friction, based on not necessarily getting along about agonism, but about an agonism that doesn't necessarily have to end in conflict.
0: That was beautiful. (laughs) And okay, well, Becky, we've taken up a lot of your time. I'm wondering what you're working on now and if you can tell us about your current and future projects or what you hope to work on.
2: Sure. So I'm currently I'm still working in Morocco. Um, I'm a little bit broader than Fez at the moment. Uh, My current project is looking at um, phytocommunicability, which is about uh, the kinds of ideologies about um, plant and human connectedness. Uh, that shape all kinds of research and conservation and consumption projects in Morocco. Um, And I'm probably about a third of the way through that book. Um, I'm hoping to be able to get that book out shortly. Um, I have a few articles out on that as well, but I'm also just um, interested more broadly in semiotic ideologies um, that have been shaping um, Arabic in general. So, I've been going back and looking at um, old uh, materia medica books, <laughs> so I'm I'm looking at uh, pharmac pharmacological books to see how they are um, the kind of semiotic ideologies that are shaping um, Arabic notions about plant human connectedness. So that's my new project.
1: Thank you for listening to today's today's episode in which we explored channeling Moroccanness, language, and the media of sociality, published by Fordham University Press in 2021. This is your host, Ahmed Mazmi.
0: And your co-host, Fatma Tarek.
1: Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in Anthropology.